don't send anybody an email. What people tend to do is to sort of say, this is my product, it's really great, do you want to buy some? And that's all they do. It's a complete and utter waste of time. Get in front of somebody, that's what you need to do. The Startup Sensations Podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond, with Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Bulent Osman, and I'm still here just outside London, here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, on the Northern California coast, where uh, actually it's raining today, Bulent. But how are you doing? I'm doing well, and how lovely for you to experience some rain. We need it. Well, Shelley, <laughs> we've got a very interesting guest today. He's a British guy called David Mansfield. He's had a very long career, mostly in British media and in various media companies. He was, in fact, the CEO of Capital Radio here in London. He's now an investor. He's a coach. And he's involved in a number of businesses. And we should be a very interesting conversation with him. I think this will be an interesting and fun conversation. You know, I don't know that much about the media business. And he certainly does, having held very senior positions. So there will be some interesting information there, I'm sure. And also, he's had just a number of years experience working very closely with startups of a variety of of types, both as a coach a mentor, a board member. So I'm also curious to hear from him some of the things that he sees working with startups in a coaching capacity, for example, compared to a larger company and the kind of coaching and advice and team building that you do there. And I'm delighted to welcome David Mansfield, now joins us all the way from Clapham in South London. David, welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm good. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Nice to see you, David. Yeah, great to see you too, Shay. Well, David, let's kick off. Uh, we'd love to know what you're up to these days. You've got a long history, uh, which we'll cover. But what are you doing at the moment? Well, I've got a few, you know, I've got a few things on. Um, and as ever, it's a sort of range of, uh, of interest, really. So I chair the board of a research company that measures radio audiences in the UK. That's owned by the BBC and Commercial Radio. So that's a, yeah, it's a very interesting research company to be, to be involved with. I've done that some time. At the other end of the scale, I'm involved with some very early stage companies. And one in particular hasn't even launched yet. So uh, we only got permission to get that going only last week. I've got a range of interests and sort of consultancies where uh, I try and help founders. Uh, I make some investments, of course, and I try and help founders you know, get off to the best possible start. And I've done that for several years now. I've also just completed a master's in uh, strategic decision making, and I've just started a PhD in the same subject. And I also want to open a bar in South London. So I've, I've got a few things happening. It doesn't sound like you slow down at all. No, no, I, I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm actually 70 uh, in, a, in three days' time. And um, at my 60th birthday, people asked me if I was going to slow down. And I said, well, actually, you know, I was going to speed up because time was probably becoming a bit more precious. So therefore, I need to, I need to do more, not less. <laughs> no, that's a great attitude. So I know you do executive and, and founder coaching. So tell us a little bit about that. And what are some of the themes that are your favorites 
for coaching. I guess if you're a manager in an organization, uh, sort of coaching comes with the territory, doesn't it really? Because the people that are around you, the more junior people look up to you and expect you to be able to guide them, you know, but most people don't have any training in that. You know, we've all had people that are good at that and people that aren't so good at it. And um, I found myself, particularly in the last decade, being approached by people saying, you know, could you come and give us a bit of advice or help or whatever? So three years ago, I decided to go and have some proper training in how to do it. Um, so I guess I moved perhaps from mentoring to coaching. So I do both of those. You know, mentoring would be, you might come to me and say, have you got any advice, David? I've got this particular issue. And I'd say, okay, well, if I was you, maybe these are two or three things I'd think about. Uh, as a coach, I don't give advice at all. So you might come to me and say, I've got this problem. And I might say to you, okay, well, tell me about it. Give me the context. And you would give me the context. And I'd say, well, what have you considered? What do you think might work? How will you decide what to do next? What, what evidence you've taken into account? So, you know, it's on that sort of mentoring coaching scale. So at one end, no advice. The other end, probably quite firm advice. That That's what I do. I currently, thinking about my sort of portfolio, I've got maybe 10 people that I help, some of whom are companies that I've invested in and some are bigger corporations. And in one particular instance, I like this example, if you go back a dozen years uh, I met this guy when he had an idea and was doing, uh, started his own company on his own. Two years ago, we sold it to CVC, one of the biggest private equity companies. And I, I was his chairman then, and he's rehired me. Um, so I'm not, I'm not his chairman now because he sort of already got one of those. But I'm his uh, strategic and board advisor. So I've sort of gone all the way with him, all the way down the road, from putting the first money into it to seeing him now run a you know a billion dollar company because that's what it is. So I would imagine that most startup founders want mentoring. How do you keep from feeling like, am I telling you what to do? Am I telling you how to run your company? Because you should be really running your company, Mr. Founder or Ms. Founder. If you were to ask me why companies don't succeed, and I've been involved in a lot of those. I mean, there are sort of two reasons, really. One, they just failed to get enough sales. That's a very common thing that companies do. You know, they're, they're a great position, but they don't seem to be able to get any traction in sales. And the other thing founders perhaps don't do as well as they should do is they don't listen. And, you know, like all of us, there's a temptation to cherry pick the advice, you know, the, to, to take the bit that you sort of agreed with in the first place. So this inbuilt sort of confirmation bias is very common. And then they don't pick the things that perhaps would, would help them more. So therefore, that comes back to your question, you know, really, is it coaching or is it mentoring? Non-directive coaching, uh, in other words, not giving people advice, is far more powerful because if people take their own advice, they're more likely to carry it out. And, and anybody that gives advice or, or mentors people would, would say the same thing. It was certainly my experience, you know, where you meet somebody and six months later, they bring up the same issue again. And you say to them, why haven't we already talked about this? And didn't we decide what to do? Uh, yeah, well, I sort of didn't do that, really. Coaching, you ask people at the end of a session, this is, I think, what you said you're going to do next. Is that right? Yes, it is right, David. Okay. And when do you think that might happen? I, I think I can do that in the next couple of weeks. Well, that sounds really good. If I was to ask you, in terms of points out of 10, how likely you are to carry that out, what would you say to me? And if they say, you know, I'm really busy or something, and it's about a seven... I'd say, okay, what would what would make it a nine? One of the traits of a, of a founder 
is supposed to be that they're really single-minded and driven. And so there's a paradox between listening and taking advice and being single-minded and doing all of that. Does it have to be mutually exclusive? In other words, can you judge in the moment with the right people, with the right relationship that you've built up, a blend of the two? Yes, you can. You can. And, and sometimes they'll say, David, you've asked me 10 questions and I know that you know the answer to this. Why don't you just tell me? I'll, I'll go and do it. And then we could get on with something else. You know, this is costing me a lot of money and we've been here 20 minutes and we're, you're still asking me questions. And my response to that is, look, sure, but I don't want to give you bad advice. So let's keep talking. Let's see where it takes us. And then, you know, if it's appropriate and if you're still comfortable with that, I, I will give you my take on the world. In some ways, it's easier to be a mentor. It's actually harder listening to what you're saying to be a coach. So how do you learn coaching? I mean, you took a course, but then you're out there. How do you perfect your coaching skills? The the course I did, you know, it wasn't a sort of two-week course. You know, it was a full-on, it was actually the thing that made me want to go on and do a master's because you had to write a thesis and you, you, you did hours and hours of practice coaching, which was witnessed and supervised. And obviously listening is a huge part of that because you don't want to interrupt people. You don't want to tell them. And and one of the things, of course, is which is very natural is that when I'm telling you a story, you're starting to think of similar things in your own mind. You know, like you go, I've got a friend who's, you know, just broken their leg. Someone else will go, gee, I've got I that just happened to my friend too, you know. And and when people say they can't remember the name of someone who's been introduced to it's because that they've stopped listening because they're already thinking of their response. Huh? So training your mind to stay focused and to be present uh, is something which I practice on a sort of daily basis. There's a very good book um, by Nancy Klein, and it's about listening. And she says things like, when was the last time you felt really listened to? So yeah, it's hard. If you had to pick one, which is the most instructive, which is the most valuable for a founder? Should they go for a coach or should they go for a mentor? I think that you need somebody with both sets of skills. So somebody like somebody like me, right? somebody who is able to move from one to the other. You know, you want to sort of say to somebody, that sounds like a great idea, but really there are consequences here that perhaps you haven't thought through. So at the very least, let me put them in front of you. Because, you know, I've screwed up a lot and I can help you avoid the mistakes I made. You know, that's one of the great things about being experienced. You can take what I've done and, and I'm going to give it to you for nothing. And that's mentoring and that's advice. Yeah? Uh, on the other side of it might be, well, I'm going to help you work that out yourself. And I, I think a good advisor, let's call them, a, you know, a coach and an advisor and a mentor is able to transition between the two depending on the context and the circumstances. And that's what I, that's what I try to do. And I'm not descriptive on one or the other. We've heard varying opinions about boards and how much they should be high level involved in just oversight and that sort of thing versus providing some mentoring and maybe coaching. Do you have some thoughts on that? I think it's tough for founders to get that bit right. I mean, if you take a PLC company or, you know, I mean, I've, I've been on the board of lots of PLC companies, PLC companies in the UK, publicly quoted, and they have to have a board of non-executive, independent non-executive directors. I was a chief executive I, on a quoted company. I had to have that board. 
there's a big difference between having a board where you have to have them there in the room and a startup board where perhaps you're looking for some guidance, some advice. But quite often, you know, if people are going to invest in your business, they'll say, who else is around? Have you got a board? And you want to be able to point to some people that look like they know what they're doing, you know, who who perhaps have invested before, uh, perhaps they chair boards of um, startup companies, you know, preferably they've taken them from nothing to, you know, millions and therefore, you know, they, they can anoint this board and your investment with the same sort of stuff. I'll give an example of a company where I'm an investor. The guy who started the business, like a number of companies, has ended up taking people onto his board because that was a condition of their money. That isn't always a great place to be. Some of those people perhaps don't bring the experience or the skills that they could do. If it's very difficult to get rid of them, you know, the ideal situation, of course, is that you have people around your board that can introduce you to other people that can give you guidance and experience, you know, on contracts or sale pipelines or whatever. That's the ideal thing. And I've seen, you know, I've seen lots of that. And obviously I've tried to do that myself. But I think that probably a lot of founders aren't careful enough thinking about who they're going to take on. You know, another example is a founder I'm talking to. And he said to me, look, I've met this guy through somebody else. You know, um, I think he's going to put some money in, but he loves the product. He loves what we do. And, you know, he really wants to join the board. And he says he can introduce me to these people in the supply chain and everything. I said, okay, well, if I take your organizational chart that we talked about in terms of how you're going to fill that, can you tell me where this person fits? You know, what role are they going to fill? Because I can't see it from what you've told me. Well, no, they're not there. Well, what are they going to do that you can't do? What are you going to ask them to deliver very specifically? What will they bring by when? And would it be an idea to test that? Because if they're good and they really love your product and they're really supportive, then they won't mind that. You know, what due diligence can you do? Do they sit on any other boards? What do people say about them? Did he put the guy on or the woman on? I think he met him for the third time and he said, well, you said you can bring some money in, but you haven't really answered my question about money you're going to put in. He said, oh, yeah, no, sure, sure. No, it's not a problem. I'll put in 25 grand. I'll do that. That's what he said. And the CEO said, Okay, he said, I'd like you to meet David because he's my sort of advisor uh, and everything. And he's an investor and I'm his second biggest investor. And the guy went, yeah, sure, sure. So he came back to me, the CEO, and said, when can you meet him? And I said, well, I'm free in two or three days time, but you tell me what works and we can set up the teams. And he messaged him, no reply. And he emailed him, no reply. And I saw the founder over Christmas, a month later, and the guy just disappeared. Interesting. He wanted to be paid in equity for his services. Wow. Getting paid in equity in itself is very complicated and not to be recommended either. It, it really makes things messy, yeah. So what is the best configuration of remuneration for the right level of involvement? Well, I think it depends on your entry point. So if we take the companies that I've invested in, so if we take um, the one that you know was very successful. I was their first investor, and I bought twenty percent of the business when it wasn't the business really. And for probably the first two or three years, I gave my advice for nothing because I wanted the business to succeed because I owned twenty percent of it. So for me, it was a bit of a no-brainer. But as the business developed and they developed their pipeline and they got revenue in, I then became their official chairman, and they paid me originally, I think, like you know, a thousand pounds a month, but ended up paying me. 3,000 or 4,000 pounds a month as the business grew. But that was over 10 years. If you take as a production company that I've invested in and they wanted to raise some money, I know the two guys pretty well. 
And I, I hate production businesses. They are terrible businesses because there's no continuous stream of revenue. You know, it's, it's feast or famine. You get a great big deal, then there's nothing. And I'm in that business because I want to turn it into a content and IP owning business. And these guys are very creative, but they've given away their formats and they don't have to do that. When I was at Capital Radio, uh, the guy there who was Chris Tarrant's producer was very creative. And after he'd left, actually, but he came up with the format for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he and Chris and the production company, you know, they own that format and obviously it went pretty well. And it's that type of model, really. So, you know, I'm into recurring revenues and therefore what I get paid is not just as a sort of hired chairman. If I'm going to be a chairman of a company, I'm thinking about every company virtually in the startup early stage that I've chaired, I've had an investment in and they've paid me nothing really in the early days and then paid me a fee as the business has developed. And I think it's important to pay a fee um, people, and people want to because you know they don't want to feel that you're doing them a favour and they can't pick up the phone or send you an email. You're a man of many talents. Uh, you've got a long history in the, uh, the media business, um, but you're also an author as well. And you've written this book with a very intriguing title, The Monday Revolution. What is that all about? Can you just give us a quick synopsis of what this book is all about? It sort of came about really because my, my background is sales. That's where I started. I got chucked out of school, so I didn't get any exams, didn't go to university. I did an engineering apprenticeship for five years. It was very unhappy, but I finished it. And then I ended up uh, almost as a failed salesman for Terry's Chocolate Oranges. And I was the worst rep in the country. And I, I knew that because they sent me a letter every week telling me. Um, <laughs> so uh, it didn't go very well. But then I got a mentor who didn't want a failure. He was a new sales manager. He didn't want someone to fail. So he he sort of took me under his wing and he taught me how to sell. And after sort of a few months, I got very lucky and I became one of the most successful sales reps in the country, so much so they offered me a sort of promotion and everything else. So I therefore developed my sales career into media and, and media sales. And along the way, I've met loads and loads of people and I was at my friend's book launch a few years ago and I met a professor from Cass Business School who said, I need to talk to people like you because our business school doesn't really know anything about real world business. You know, we teach all this stuff really, but we need people like you around us. He would ask me stories and I'd tell him my sales rep stories. And he said, you know, you should write all these down and put them in a book. And it took me about three years to write all the stories. But basically, I love business books, but I don't like, I don't like the ones that um, are practical. So I like, you know, what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. These are all old books by Mark McCormack, but it's a really practical book and the One Minute Manager and some of those and How to Win Friends and Influence People from 1935, you know. These are all books where you can think, oh yeah, I could try that tomorrow. So I tried to write a management book, would say like, here's the stories. And then at the end of each chapter, Here's seven or eight things you can do starting on Monday. I was wondering where the title came from. My publisher that came up with it, she said, well, about the Monday Revolution. I went, yeah, sounds good. I haven't got a better idea. So let's do that. that's where it came from. And I gave the professor the last chapter in the book. I said he couldn't have the first one because it would be better than I could write. So we had to be at the end. 
you know, I haven't sold many books, really, you know, relatively, but actually uh, the way that it sort of gets out there, you know, and, and people go, can you talk? I mean, I launched it three days before UK lockdown, so it wasn't great timing. Well, actually, it could be good timing because what are people going to do except read, right? Sit at home and read. <laughs> I'm intrigued by some of your sales stories. I'm, I'm actually a sales guy myself uh, in my corporate career. But I'd be very interested to hear maybe one of your most uh, surprising or shocking stories that you may have written about in your book. Uh, my, my, I had an Australian boss when I worked in TV many years ago, and he was a terrible person, really. I mean, he was a sort of bully and difficult, but I learned a lot from him. It was very different to the world today. And uh, he was really positive about everything. So if someone would say to us, we haven't got a budget to advertise on TV, you know, he would see that as a great thing to change their minds. And we had a saying, which is, there's always a budget for a great idea. A friend of mine who works in the motor trade took me to the Le Mans in France where Jaguar won that year. I thought, wouldn't that be great for Jaguar to advertise in the middle of the news on ITV in the UK? So I went to the advertising agency, which is always a bad place to go because they don't actually really control it. But the chief executive of the media department actually lived in my street. So I said, look, I've got this great idea. And they went, well, the client hasn't got a budget. So I got hold of the marketing director of Jaguar in Coventry, and I, I managed it, but I persuaded him. You know, I sort of said, look, I've got this brilliant thing. I want to give it to you. Anyway, I got an appointment with him, and my friend found out about it, and he was a bit annoyed. And he said, if you want to waste your time driving 150 miles to Jaguar in Coventry, that's up to you, but there's no money. So I had a mock-up of this idea put in a mock-up of the news, and he just went, that's us. And he said, oh, yeah, well, we'll find the money. We need to do that. And he went and found a budget for it. And um, the advertising agency won an award. So the moral of the story is? Well, the moral of the story is, if you've got a great idea, then take it out to somebody and don't take no for an answer. You know, you need to, that's what sales is about. It's not about saying an email and hoping someone replies because no one ever does, right? And the other story, which is also true, is the company um, that I've talked about. So this is selling uh, online interactive training. They were doing it in a classroom when I first met them. And I said, well... You can't scale this. You need to do it online. So he got his brother involved, who's involved in sales. We put together a, a business plan and put together a sales thing. And so it started to go quite well in the UK. And so we decided we'd go to America. So Johnny, the brother and sort of joint founder, he went off to New York. I don't think he'd ever been there before. So we got a product that no one thought they needed and a company that no one ever heard of. <laughs> this is the difference in attitude. right? So Johnny, best sales guy I've ever met, doesn't take any prisoners. So he went back to his network in the UK and he said, look, I'm here in New York. I want to go and see Walmart. Well, I don't know them. And he would contact his people in the UK and they go, well, I'm, I don't know them either, but I might know somebody who might know them. Right? And this is where the advertising network is good at this. And basically through a series of contacts, he got into those companies. When people ask me about how to build a business, you know, should we use a sales agency to do mail shots? You know, should we do this? I say it's all a waste of time. Don't send anyone an email saying, this is what I've got, and I hope you find it interesting, and let me know if it hits the spot. I mean, I get those all the time. It's a complete and utter waste of time. Get in front of somebody. That's what you need to do. There's a company, that, a lady that I coach, she runs a manufacturing business in dancewear. She wanted to get into these high-profile dance schools like the Royal Ballet, and she said, I've been emailing, but no one replies. I said, well, so we went on LinkedIn. We looked up there. We looked at who she knew. And then she got very scared about, well, if I contact that person who used to be there two years ago, maybe they'll say no. I said, well, what have you got to lose? You know, We got the introduction, but then it went cold. And so then she was sort of saying, 
oh, well, they haven't, they, they said it was great, but then they haven't heard from them. I said, well, why don't you send them an email saying, I think I'm in your junk. Could you have another look? And they come back and go, oh, no, no, I got it. I was really sorry. Yeah, I'd love to fix a meeting. And she got into those places. So it's keep going. It's using contacts. It's trying to build some level of rapport, isn't it, as well? And, and contacts can give you some reflected credibility, let's say. So worthy of a call, worthy of an email. That's the chink in the armor. Then you can build upon that. At the end of the day, people buy from people. Of course they do. But what people tend to do is to sort of say, this is my product. It's really great. Do you want to buy some? And that's all they do. People sweat over these pitches. And I say, you know, why don't you just take one slide? Because no one cares. They, they care about what you think and uh, how you can help them, not whether the words on slide three are in the past or present tense. So you're an investor and you've been an investor in multiple companies. What is it you look for? I think my sort of playbook on that really is, uh, particularly with early stage companies, I want to see evidence of demand. Prove to me you've got some orders. Prove to me that people want this product. How big is it? How scalable is it? You know, what's the addressable market? So all of that stuff is very important. But also, of course, you know, you meet the founder and often these founders are very charismatic. They're very single-minded. They thought things through. They want your money. So they've got quite good at saying the right things. And of course, you know, I can fall in love with founders like everybody else. You know, it's like confirmation bias. So you, you have a job spec and you say, right, this is it. I've nailed the job spec now. And then and then Shelley turns up and she's only got half of it. But he seems like a really great person. And, and I go, yeah, but you wanted a degree in, you know, mathematics. And you said that was mandatory and Shelley hasn't got that. Yeah, well, she can pick that up. Big mistake. And then six months down the road, it's not really worked out. I think that I've got better at it, really. If I look back at my early investments, I was pretty naive about why I made them. So, yeah, um, I think I think you do want tough people people that have some sort of track record. But really, it's not all about the idea, obviously. But I like scalable businesses. I'm like everybody else. So I want you know recurring revenue streams. And um, and the companies that I've worked with, that haven't gone so well. It's I mean, well, I'm thinking about one, um, this friend of mine, and I was in it for five years with my brother. And it just sort of ran out of road, really. You know, like he got 10 clients and they were great clients and they'd stay with him. But in spite of everything, me and other people, he just couldn't seem to get beyond those 10 clients. David, can you share with us um, your thoughts around how business has changed today here in 2024 compared to, say, 10 years ago? Has it changed for the better? Has it changed for the worse? It's changed for the better because, well, several things have changed, really. One, you know, it isn't like succession anymore. A madman. I mean, I was in the UK version of that. I mean, it was fantastic adrenaline, working in media, drinking and all that stuff, you know, but it probably isn't as much fun. I don't know. That that was a phase. I think businesses are more professional these days. I think they have better people, better educated people. I think that's helpful. Uh, really online has allowed a huge, huge number of people to sort of, you know, build their dreams and start their own company and do stuff. And I meet incredible people, not people who want to sell to private equity or get venture capital money, but people that are having very fulfilled lives doing something that they enjoy. And when I left school, there was no suggestion that you should enjoy work. Uh, I was born during rationing in 1954, the Second World War. And so there wasn't enough food in the shops that I was born. And the reason I did an apprenticeship was my dad 
you know, as I said, I screwed up at school. And my dad said to me, go and get a, a trade, you know, because then you'll always have a roof over your head if you're lucky. It was nothing about, and you'll enjoy it. I mean, that wasn't supposed to happen. These days, people's expectation is that they should do something that's rewarding and they should enjoy it. And I think that's a great place to be. I work for a charity that does state school talks. And I go and talk to kids at school quite a lot. You know, it's very interesting. They've got a different take on the world because the world is a different place. You know, they see lots of different things. So um, people are more global and there's more opportunity. Uh, there's lots of money out there. So I think that's good. And I, But I do think the most positive thing is that people, if they can find their own sort of space and their own destiny, have an opportunity to have a much more fulfilled life. I've got three children, right? The oldest is 40. He started his own business with a cow in a field. He's now got, uh, it's called Field and Flower. And, you know, he turns over millions and he, he built that business himself. You know, my daughter is going to open a bakery. And the fact that they can go and do it, the world has opened up. And I think um, a friend of mine, he understands tech and he understands AI. And he says the next stage of AI is going to be transformational. And it's happening in 2024. I think the upside of that is fantastic because it allows us to have bespoke education, healthcare. The other side of it is there's a lot of businesses out there, and I can think of one or two that I know, where their business model is redundant in this world. They, they need to pivot quite quickly if they're going to make sense of AI. And what are the key learnings uh, then for people today, founders today, with the onset of, of AI? What should they be doing? What should they be thinking about especially as, as you say, for certain businesses that do need to pivot? Well, you know, if you go back to my book, right at the beginning, there's some sort of principles there. And one is, you know, look around you and see what else is going on and see who else is doing stuff. And regardless of what your business is, you need to understand AI. You can't, I mean, I asked one of my founders, he said, oh, I'm too busy for that. I said, just going to come and bite you. If you're running your own business, you need to understand it. You know, don't go on TikTok or whatever. You need to look at some proper stuff and there's, so much free stuff out there. So read, read, read about AI. Look at what other companies are doing. You should always be doing that. And if people are doing it already and you're not, go and steal their ideas. You've got to, you've got to be up to speed. You've got to be able to look at your team and take them a bit out of the day-to-day and say, well, what, how is this relevant to us? And how can we stay ahead? Uh, David, it's been a fascinating conversation. If people have enjoyed it and want to get in touch with you and want to know more about you and perhaps even read your book and keep connected, what's the best way for people to do that? Well, I've got a website, which is uh, www.themondayrevolution.com. If anybody wants to contact me on LinkedIn, I'm very responsive, very happy. If people want to send me a message saying, hey, can I connect? And I you know, was interested or whatever. So that works too. Um, and I've got an email address, david at davidjmansfield.com. I'm not precious about any of that. So if anyone wants to reach out, that's uh, that's that's cool by me. And, and, and to leave you the final word, if there was one nugget of wisdom that you wish to uh, uh, tell our audience about, what would that one amazing nugget of wisdom be? I'm a big Clint Eastwood fan, you know, from the early days of the, the Westerns, you know, before he was famous doing Dirty Harry and all the rest of it, right? There's a line in one of the movies where he says, in these parts, a man's life can depend on a mere scrap of information. And that's very true. So, you know, make sure you know that. And the other thing I would say um, is that if you're an entrepreneur and you go to bed, you just need to say the words cash flow. Because that's the only thing that matters. Absolutely right. Well said, David. Well, look, fantastic. It's been wonderful having you on the show. We really appreciate uh, your time and all of your wisdom. 
And we wish you all the best, uh, especially for your book as well. I've really enjoyed talking about myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> And we've enjoyed listening. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, Shelley, that was a, an interview with uh, David that was full of practical advice, really, from clearly a very experienced senior leader, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, it was a pleasure to listen to him. I tell you, one of the things that I actually found very interesting was his distinction between coaching and mentoring. And what he talked about was mentoring is really giving advice. So if you are a mentor to somebody, they ask for your advice, you give advice, you say, here's what you ought to do. Whereas coaching is drawing out the other person's thought process so that they come to a conclusion. And what he said that I found really interesting is, you know, people are much more inclined to take action based on a conclusion they have reached themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And and at the end, I think he concluded that you need a bit of both. And that extends to the board as well. You know, it's important uh, for founders to think about board composition and having the right mixture of people, not just those that are willing to make an investment and put some money in. You actually need people who've got the skills to be a coach, to be a mentor, to guide the founder in the appropriate way, and also to align to the founder's personality type. Because listening skills is really important, and David mentioned that, didn't he? But that links to an alignment of personality preferences and and personality types. And I think that's important as well, isn't it? Yeah, listening. He made an interesting point about listening. It's a temptation to be not quite listening to what they're saying, but thinking ahead as to what you're going to say next. And he said, it's very important to really school yourself to listen and stay focused on how the conversation is going, not trying to jump ahead. So I, I took that one home. Yeah. This man has done a lot of things. Uh, he's an author uh, with a book called The Monday Revolution about mentoring and coaching and giving very practical advice. Let me put it that way. I like that word, pragmatic, practical. The title came from the fact that at each chapter, there are some action items for someone to take on and start the next Monday trying those things. Yeah, well, I've been talking about action and sales. He said it was a complete waste of time. What most people do today, which is to write emails saying, here's my product, do you want to buy it? Because no one's going to do that, not initially anyway. So it is important to create an empathy, a relationship. And therefore, he was advising, I guess, the old school thing of just getting in front of people. I know that these days that may well be remote, but actually to get in front of people, to meet people, to understand their particular uh, pain points and align the solution to them. So what are the benefits to them? Not to yourself, but to them. And to know that, you need to understand people. And again, good listening skills comes into play with elite level selling. And if you listen and if you ask the right questions and if you position your solution then there's a high probability of, of, of making sales. One of the things he said that was interesting to me was he felt like the whole work ecosystem today is in certain ways more professional. He used that word. But what I really liked was his promotion of staying current, keeping up with things, make sure 
you know what's going on out there, what the trends are. You may not be able to act on them today, but you got to know what's going on. And especially now, Shelley, because the speed of change, the whole movement that we're currently experiencing in 2024 is rapid and it's profound. And I just think now, if any time, you've got to really be up to date with what's going on and consider what it what impact it has on you, your company, your future, and how you can embrace it. He's actually now working on a PhD. I mean, this is a man who doesn't slow down. And he said, I can't slow down because I'm older now and, and there's less time. And so if anything, I have to go faster. Next time on Startup Sensations. There's a tendency to define yourself a little bit too rigidly. Be thinking a little bit ahead of what's the next stage in your life and career and plant some of those seeds, then you'll be better equipped as you go through these different career transitions. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations podcast.